This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS Sponsor, talking today with Corey Hofstein, CIO of Newfound Research. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the Office of Investment Products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree and Affiliates. I'm in Boston this week in the Newfound headquarters talking with Corey Hofstein, Chief Investment Officer of Newfound Research. Corey, thanks for hosting me here in Boston in your headquarters here. Jeremy, nice to have you here. And so we have your podcasting set up. You uh, have been doing a lot of writing, a lot of blogging, um, but a lot, like a lot of us in financial Twitter here, you have started a podcast. Uh, what, tell us about your, your experience. I, you've been, you did sort of a new format of the podcast, Netflix-style release. Like what got you to thinking about doing a season one bulk release uh, and how are you thinking about it? So I was I was clearly pretty late on the on the podcast thing. Finally got convinced after talking to guys like Patrick O'Shaughnessy and, and you about how great the podcast is. I did want to take a bit of a different approach. I mean, there's so many great podcasts out there. I, I didn't think the world really needed yet another financial podcast. Uh, and if I was going to do it, I, I did want to take a different spin. So my spin was basically... Uh, ultimately that I wanted the opportunity to go deeper. And I thought the way to go deeper was by being a bit more seasonal in the approach. So the first season is just really an interview series uh, with a number of friends, bloggers, frequent writers, podcast hosts. Um, But upcoming seasons, the goal is ultimately to focus on one particular topic, interview a number of experts in that topic, make it heavily edited, and then bulk publish five to seven episodes and let people binge their hearts out. So you had, you know, season one, I saw you were looking for research on season two. Um, any early feedback on where you're going with season two? Do we have a preview? Yeah, season two is shaping up to be a bit of a surprise to me. I, I put a poll out there and people could take take a stab at what they wanted to tell me they were interested in. And the winning poll vote, which really surprised me, was portfolio optimization. So that either says something about my followers on Twitter or or people are just really interested in learning about portfolio construction. So that's where we're headed. Um, I think it, what's interesting is it is a really broad topic um, from the basics of just the history with Markowitz all the way to portfolio construction when you're talking asset allocation is very, very different than security selection potentially. So I think there's a lot of interesting avenues to pursue. I'll probably have to narrow it down a bit, but uh, I think it's going to be fun. Well, that's great news because that's somewhat the topic we're going to talk about today. So we're going to get to preview the Corey Hofstein view of the world, and then you'll you know get your season episode to see what other people are, are thinking about. Um, any any just highlights from season one that you want to bring people's attention to? Just the guests you had, or any learnings that you took from from the people? Yeah, my number one learning is that podcasting is really hard, Jeremy. <laughs> it's it's a lot harder than I thought it was operationally, I mean, you're just lugging around these microphones, trying to get these things set up. I I just took 10 minutes here trying to figure out how to configure my computer to record both of us. And I've done it a dozen times. So I don't know why it took me so long. But yeah, it's an operational nightmare, editing nightmare. I'm very hands on with the editing. Um, But from the actual education perspective, I think what was really fascinating to me was talking to so many of my peers, collaborators and friends who are just so smart on these topics. And I would walk away from every conversation thoroughly convinced of their view of the world. Um, But there was a a very common thread among all of them, which was ultimately there is no optimal portfolio, um, that there's a lot of uncertainty involved in every decision we make. And the balance in portfolio construction, security selection, it's always that trying to focus on finding signal in the noise, but not being so certain of the signal. I think Meb Faber summed it up really well when he said, the goal is to just survive. And if you can cross that threshold, there's a lot of other interesting things you can do, but you got to make sure you cross that cross that threshold. That is an important one. I, I've been lucky to, I feel lucky to survive every day. And uh, I've been surviving so far for about 13 years. Hopefully it keeps going. Um, so when you think about newfound, so maybe let's get transitioned into talking about 
newfound research, how you got started as CIO. You, you take a very quantitative approach to building portfolios. Maybe as a high level, just describe for the listeners again, just your background and, and your way of thinking about building portfolios. Yeah. So I think the thing that really differentiates our firm, newfound research, from just about every other asset manager out there is the vast, vast, vast majority of active asset managers focus on generating alpha, trying to outperform the market, create excess return. At Newfound Research, our view is quite simply that our first focus is on managing risk. To that point, Mev Faber said, just survive. That for us, we think for most individual investors, the management of risk and cutting down those long, prolonged material drawdowns is much, much more important uh, to their ultimate goals and achieving uh, those retirement goals than trying to outperform the market by an extra 50 basis points or 100 basis points. Um, not to say that outperforming the market isn't valuable if you can do it, but again, for us, where we differentiate is really in that focus of, of downside protection and preservation. So a lot of what we focus on is um, what we would call risk-focused tactical asset allocation, so not a lot at the security selection level, but really things like sector rotation, multi-asset investing, asset allocation, and trying to focus on how we can use a lot of the same style premia that get used in the security selection space, so value, momentum, carry, trend, those same concepts, but apply them in effort to try to manage risk. So I'm going to drill down in more, some of those topics in more, but let's let's sort of keep it at a high level for a second. Um, and you sort of mentioned having Meb on your podcast. I have right in front of me Meb's latest book, uh, The Best Investment Writing, Selected Writing from Leading Investment Authors, edited by Meb Faber. Uh, sort of brand new book just being released where you can get uh, a good cross-section across the industry of people who's writing and um, what's interesting, actually, you and I both have a section right next to each other in the book, and your your portfolio, your title is Portfolios in Wonderland and the Weird Portfolio. And so you set up the the worldview here, looking at just how do you get expected returns on a stock portfolio, on a bond portfolio, and what are those expected returns that then lead to the challenges of you know, what are investors facing today in this market environment and the risks that they're facing? Maybe talk through how you think through expected portfolio returns on a stock bond portfolio. Yeah, first, two important points. Um, first, I'm very jealous because I haven't gotten my copy of the book yet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking know. at that saying, well, where's my copy? I, I don't know. The, uh, the the publishers sent me two copies. I got one in my office, one here with me. And then I got to say, I'm really surprised I made the cut this year. I was looking, I saw a picture of the front cover and it was listing all the authors on the front cover. And I said, oh, I really stepped it up from last year. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to sneak my way in this book, but uh, I'm very honored to have been selected. Uh, and, and my goal is ultimately make that list on the banner on the front. But yeah. so to talk to my article a bit, you know, there is this common thread, a common concern among a lot of the large asset management firms and institutions that expected returns going forward are low. Um, and to distill a lot of complicated discussion down into two sort of, I think, meaningful points for U.S.-focused investors is that ultimately at the end of the day, low interest rates imply low bond returns and higher than average equity valuations tend to imply lower forward equity returns. Now, these things aren't written in stone. There's a good deal of uncertainty with them, particularly year to year. But those tend to be good variables uh, in forecasting returns for the next seven to 10 years. And so what we wanted to look at was in light of this concern, what can investors ultimately do if they do want to try to enhance their return opportunities. And so what we did in the article is we actually used a set of capital market assumptions, which are basically expected returns and correlations and volatilities from a large number of asset classes from JP Morgan, and said, if we close our eyes and don't concern ourselves with looking like a normal 60-40 portfolio that an investor might be used to, and just run a blind optimization and let the computer tell us, well, how do we maximize returns if we're trying to stick to the same risk level as a 60-40? What do things look like? And uh, candidly, they look pretty weird. You don't get a whole lot of U.S. equity allocation. You really don't get a whole lot of bond allocation. You really get this barbell of risk where the portfolio loads you very heavily on emerging markets, which are um, 
undervalued right now by most metrics. It loads you very heavily on diversifiers like gold and alternatives. It loads you very heavily on long-dated treasuries, which I think most people, uh, particularly when we wrote the article a year ago, would have just really scoffed at, the idea of long-dated treasuries in a rising rate environment. But again, the optimizer doesn't know what these assets are. It's just trying to find balance. And to us, the real takeaway of the portfolio was to ultimately enhance return, you're going to have to get uncomfortable, that you're going to have to build a portfolio that doesn't look like a traditional 60-40. And going back to that notion of just surviving that we were talking about, for us, our view is the optimal portfolio is first and foremost, one that an investor can stick with. So trying to find the balance of, is an investor willing to hold this weird allocation um, in order to pursue those excess returns, and are they really worth it? We just reintroduce our guest here on Behind the Marks. We're talking with Corey Hofstein, the CIO of Newfound Research. Uh, we're talking about how Corey builds portfolios, optimal allocations, risk management. As much as we talk about equity markets being one of the challenges for the standard 60-40, I mean, you have a chart going back to 1881, um, the 60-40 portfolio expected returns, but also breaking out bond expected returns, stock expected returns. And you know the, when you wrote the article, it, you had a expected return for the 60-40, sort of real return of 2.2%, with bond yield being basically close to zero or negative um, when you know, the average is, is considerably higher over time. And then stock returns are you know below average, but you could say in some ways not quite as much below average as bonds. Um, but any comments on, you know, sort of the that fixed income environment and, and what you think that means for investors? Yeah, I think there's two really interesting points there. First is that, again, if you go back historically, stocks and bond valuations tended to cycle at different times. They tended to diversify each other. And it really wasn't until the last decade, decade and a half, even two decades, that all of a sudden they got very expensive uh, at the same time, which is really the concern here. It's been it's one thing if equities get expensive, but you're still getting a good yield on your bonds. The problem is if equities are expensive and bonds really aren't offering you a great alternative, you have to play the game. It's just ultimately your your expectation should be much lower. Um, the interesting thing about bonds, I think there's really two interesting takeaways. First, just from a technical perspective, I think a lot of people are concerned about a rising rate environment. And a lot of our analysis shows that it really wasn't the declining rate environment that was as strong a tailwind to returns for bonds as people think. Um, it certainly was a tailwind, but at the end of the day, the vast majority of bond returns simply come from the yield, the starting yield that you're buying at. And so today, yes, there is a rising rate environment, but as we see rates go up, it does mean that we're rolling into bonds that are offering a higher yield. So really, at the end of the day, that it's that starting yield that is the best predictor of forward returns. And so if you're a retiree today who's in that classic 20% stock, 80% bond portfolio, and your bonds on a real basis are offering you next to nothing, well, you may have managed your sequence risk and your drawdown risk, but you probably have a very significant longevity risk that you have to consider, especially now that people tend to be living longer than they have historically. So I think we as, a, as an industry need to start rethinking things like our traditional glide path uh, in light of a low interest rate environment. No, it was interesting when you showed the, the assumptions here of the 4%, 4 withdrawal rates and how does that impact your chances of running out of money, and, and given just that market dynamic, it was it was definitely an interesting way of, of framing this paper here. Well, there's a really interesting sort of historical anecdote, which is historically a risk profile was more of a preference, that if you look back at your traditional 4% safe withdrawal rate, for most investors, it didn't matter whether they were in a 20-80 or an 80-20 stock bond mix in retirement. That 4% withdrawal rate was fairly successful for them in almost every 30-year period historically. But if you go back to those same historical periods and you lower the average return to match our future expected returns, which are much lower than historical average returns, your failure rates go way up and conservative portfolios actually become the riskiest from your probability of success in retirement. So again, to this notion of investors might have to get uncomfortable to meet their retirement goals, they might have to be willing to take on more risk or use other creative solutions. And you talked about trying to 
combine some of the academic premier research on whether it's value, momentum, carry into risk managed portfolios. Maybe talk about, all right, so we'll, maybe we'll carve up equities and bonds separately for a moment. Um, but you talked about sector rotation for risk managing equities. Is that really relying on momentum research or do you think, is there some element of the valuation based uh, style premium within your view of sector rotation? Yeah, so I think, uh, not to escape the question, but I think all of it can be successful, okay. right? I think it depends on your goal. At the end of the day, yes, you can use momentum-based sector rotation. Um, I believe we have evidence that suggests that valuation-based sector rotation works. Even if you use something as simple as carry, looking at dividend yields, which is akin to value, that seems to work over the long run. But ultimately, if your goal is managing risk against significant and prolonged drawdowns, none of those are really going to do a whole lot to protect you. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're still, if the S&P is going down 50%, you're going down a significant chunk as well. Um, and so in light of that, that's where we think approaches like trend following and the ability to move your portfolio into things like short-term U.S. treasuries in effort to prever- preserve capital can be a really meaningful contributor to your long-term returns. Right. So your your approach to risk management is really from the trend-following model, but then you're going to try to add value through selection as well through some of these other models. Right. Again, there's nothing wrong with pursuing alpha in our mind. Our, ultimately, if you can generate alpha for an investor, it is very meaningful in that compounding over the long run. But our view is particularly for investors at peak sequence risk, which is near retirees and early retirees where large drawdowns have a meaningful, meaningful impact on their um, lifestyle in retirement. Things like trend following are huge, huge contributors to managing risk. And so we focus on those primarily. When you talk to investors about this, how do they... so? I, and I've done some research on the similar going long, flat, long, short. You know, there's sort of different dynamics of do you want to actually go short the market once you start seeing the trend going negative? Do you just want to go to cash? Uh, and then or do you want to hedge, you know, a long sector portfolio with the market versus going to cash? Um, and then you have sort of the behavioral questions of, well, an investor sees, well, maybe going to cash is because you believe there's some basis risk between picking your sectors and going flat. Um, by picking the best sectors and hedging with the S&P 500 versus I'm just going to go completely out of the market to cash. Um, How do you think about that question? So that's a great question because that has all sorts of portfolio design implications in it. And I'm sure we could waste the entire day talking about all those decisions. I think for us, there's sort of two balancing acts. Um, The first is how do we build confidence that we're actually going to achieve our objective, the primary objective we're trying to deliver. And the second is how can we be confident that our investors are going to be sustainable investors? So to steal a line from your co-host, Wes Gray, right? sustainable alpha requires sustainable investors. And what that means to us is if our process is too complicated or we create too much tracking error from what the investor expects, ultimately what that can do is shake their confidence and have them sell uh, out of the process. And the reality is a lot of these strategies need to be semi-permanent allocations in the portfolio um, for an investor to really reap the benefits of it. So to get that uh, sustainable objective, you need a sustainable investor. So for us, we try to avoid overcomplicating it, adding too many bells and whistles in the pursuit of alpha, simply because it introduces a lot more tracking error and noise into the process. To tie it back to the first point I brought up, which was establishing our confidence in the ability to deliver on our objective. Ultimately, again, the more bells and whistles we add, adds in more degrees of freedom to the process. And so if our objective is first and foremost to try to cut down on those prolonged and sustained drawdowns and really cut that left tail off, we don't want to do anything that might put that objective at risk. So if all of a sudden you go from very vanilla long flat to trying to long short time certain sectors, you might get your market timing call absolutely correct that the S&P 500 is going down. But if you go long short the wrong sectors, you can put yourself in a whole world of pain. And so that's just for us, we do think there's value over the long run. But over the long run really means 50 to 75 years with most of these style premia. And we just can't afford to get that one call wrong when we really need to get it right. 
Right. So you're thinking about this basically from going flat versus trying to short the short the sectors. Is that summarizing? Yeah. I mean, our view is I think ultimately you can use trend following in, in a long short capacity. I mean, CTAs certainly do it. And you could do something very simple as long short the S&P 500. And people have done that with a tremendous amount of success. But for us, ultimately, it comes down to, again, that sustainable return path. And if you get a couple calls wrong, if you get whipsawed and you go long and then short and long and short at the wrong time, you can put yourself really far behind the market. And that's a big opportunity cost. So for us, if we're just trying to participate with market growth and avoid really significant drawdowns. Yes, it would be great to profit during a crash, but ultimately we think that puts at risk the opportunity to significantly participate. So I, I know Newfound is a lot on sector rotation. Is there another way of looking at equities that you think is, is interesting you want to sort of talk about, or is sector rotation one of the main things that you guys think about there? So sector rotation has been our bread and butter for a long time, um, and we do think there's a number of other really interesting ways you can look at the equity market. I mean, we certainly um, advocate for a factor-based approach. We have portfolios with which we will take a, a multi-factor-based approach and utilize a trend set of trend-following signals really just as um, a guide as to how much cash buffer we want to build in the portfolio to protect. But again, it really goes back to the mandate that an investor is interested in. Some investors really like the flexibility of looking at all the underlying sectors and removing sectors that might be exhibiting particular weakness. Other investors might prefer a more passive um, factor-based approach where if there's no trends changing, they're pretty passively allocated across a diverse set of active strategies, and they just let that ride until they really feel like risk management needs to kick in. So let's let me just go back to the the fixed income side too. So we we talked about the expected yields being sort of a good expected return. So we're talking like very low real returns today. I mean the ten year tips is is got to be like fifty basis points, something like that. And so that's a low expected return. And you mentioned the weird portfolio having all sorts of emerging markets debt and bank loans and all sorts of other much riskier credit, getting back to being uncomfortable if you want to meet your um, spending goals potentially in retirement. But what? How? Talk about your approach to tactically managing risk, managing fixed income portfolios. Anything there in terms of the asset classes you include? How you think about the hedge, the trend following signal, things like that? Yeah. So fixed income is really interesting uh, when it comes to the tactical side. I think there's well, there's a number of um, things that make fixed income very different than equities. But when it comes to, to building a tactical fixed income portfolio, a couple of things that are most important are that, in general, the fixed income space is a lot more axes of diversification. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at a U.S. Treasury portfolio versus a high-yield bond versus emerging market local currency debt, there are exposures to U.S. interest rates there. There's exposures to credit spreads. There's exposures to the dollar. You don't get all these diversifying exposures necessarily on the equity side. Corey, one of the topics that I sort of took some advice from you. Um, so, you know, there was, that was your a, first mistake. Uh, no, you know, you were featured in um, in Barron's a, about a year ago, a little bit over, maybe a little bit under a year ago. And, you know, this was a, a topic, you know, we actually, it was talked about on Twitter a lot, actually even ahead of, I saw you writing about in Barron's, but you writing about in Barron's really caught my eye. Um, but the, the, there was a question from Crystal Kim about, you know, where should innovation in ETFs go? And you, you talked about how there's a lot of different categories out there, but efficiently using capital was one concept that you thought there needed to be innovation on, that you thought managing a portfolio of fixed income, layering on an equity sort of exposure on top of that was something you saw as, as a need. What, what got you thinking about that as one of the innovation states that was needed in ETFs? So, as we mentioned a little earlier, a huge focus for me is risk management at Newfound. I think one of the risks going forward for investors, and we've, we've touched upon this a little, is the risk of low returns. I think that's if, if we simply enter a prolonged environment where your average equity fixed income portfolio offers a very low real yield, 
uh, or real return, that can be a significant risk not only to investors in, in accumulation, but also those investors uh, in their retirement. And so for me, this idea of capital efficiency is basically how can we make sure we get the maximum bang for our invested dollar? And there's really, at least for me, four sort of concepts that all fit under the capital efficiency umbrella. And the first is rather obvious, lower fees. And I think you're seeing this in the industry, that if I'm only going to get a 4% return, well, all of a sudden a 100 basis point fee is a massive proportion of that versus if I think I'm going to get a 12% return, eh, I might be a little more relaxed about the fee. So I think declining fees, making sure you get the most the largest percentage of that uh, invested return is really important. I think increased exposure to active views. So I know this is something you've talked a lot about with active share and similar concepts, making sure you're not in paying a high fee for someone who's just a closet indexer. Again, we're seeing a lot more education and illumination in the industry on the same topic. Uh, I think, again, risk management, protecting against drawdowns is a really significant part of capital efficiency, just simply making sure your capital base doesn't erode. But what I was really talking about in the Barron's article, and I think this is what caught your eye, was I think that there can be a very good argument made for why investors should start thinking about embracing the prudent use of leverage. That if I can invest a dollar in a low-return environment but get a $1.50's worth of exposure and not necessarily take on a tremendous amount more drawdown risk or margin call risk, and I can intelligently allocate that capital, uh, I think that can be a very meaningful return improvement potential for investors. Now, now the second you say leverage, everybody's uh, flags get raised, their their hair stands up on their, their arms like, whoa, leverage, got to be careful here. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of the leverage ETFs, I actually think there was like a ban on even launching more ETFs from the SEC that are levered. And... Um, now, this is when you talk about prudent leverage. Uh, so this is one way, you know, there actually are a lot of active managers who combine these types of leverage strategies that you des- described about. You talked about managing portfolio treasuries and adding an equity swap. There are definitely active managers, um, a lot of fixed income managers who will manage an active portfolio of, of fixed income bonds and layer in a futures and equity futures, even some smart beta factor equities on top of it. But um, in the idea of trying to get this more efficient capital using some leverage. I mean, what? How do you see that as as just being value added? And what are the types of things you think people could do using that leverage? Well, maybe before we even talk about how investors can use that leverage, we can just back up for a second and say, you know, as shocked as people might be from hearing the word leverage, at the end of the day, this was the conclusion of modern portfolio theory, yeah. right? Back when Markowitz and and Sharp at all founded modern portfolio theory, the idea was we were going to find the portfolio that maximized our return per unit of risk. And then investors would simply use leverage to increase their notional exposure or even decrease, right? So if you're a conservative investor, what you really should do is find that portfolio that maximizes risk-adjusted return and hold that in cash. Well, no one actually does that in the industry because everyone's allergic to holding cash, but that is the optimal thing to do. And similarly, we wouldn't actually want young, aggressive investors holding a portfolio of just equities. They are theoretically much, much, much better off holding a diversified portfolio of equities, bonds, alternatives, whatever, you know, commodities, and levering that up to an appropriate risk level. So this isn't some crazy notion. This is going back to the 1960s. This was the rational conclusion of modern portfolio theory. It's just that no one actually does it. And so we had all these levered ETFs come out, and I don't think we need to spend too much time talking about those. They are not really... It's not the same, right? Just simply levering your exposure to the S&P 500 is not the same as taking a 60-40 stock bond portfolio and levering that up. You're getting much more uh, efficient returns from a diversified portfolio, and therefore your risk of things like margin call go way down. I just think from from an actual operational perspective, it's too burdensome for most investors to actually be able to access that nowadays. Um, and so you haven't seen much of it. But I do think that if investors are able to take a diversified portfolio and lever it up, 
um, that is ultimately a much more well-diversified and risk-managed process than simply going all in on equities. Yeah, so I, I think the one thing on the 2x levered ETFs, what, as some of them are constructed, you know, the way people get afraid of leverage is that they hear, you know, you talk about sequencing risk for retirees who have a drawdown and, you know, they get unlucky and the equity markets crash and they can't build up. Well, there is sequencing risk in traditional levered ETFs that have a daily reset. And so, you know, they might not... Um, they have a drawdown, they, they reset the leverage, and they don't get, when there's volatile periods, when there is a lot of volatility, they're de-risking as the markets go down, they're not going to have the full exposure. Um, and so they're not going to have that compounding that, you know, that is not a long-term compounding of 2x returns. It is a highly path-dependent 2x return. Versus when you think about, and so your idea of, of packaging a fixed income portfolio with, with equities the way I took it, and, and you could say if you don't like my implementation of the idea or not, but what we looked at is saying, well, how can we proxy? The standard allocation is a 60-40 portfolio. And we said if people want to take that, you know, if you, if you thought about allocating to this kind of stock bond package, if you put a two-thirds allocation to this allocation, you would get 90-60 stock bonds, and that would represent a 60-40. And so if you, if you buy a portfolio of stocks and then you add bond futures on top of that, um, so you're doing it a few different ways. One, in a way, with the bond futures, I think you're getting better taxation. You know, futures have actually better taxation than traditional only fixed income because you're taxed at the capital gains rate. There's a 60-40 capital gains on futures versus all ordinary income rates on fixed income. Um, and then, you know, you're using the equities as just the traditional equities. And that doesn't have that same daily reset risk. The futures rebalance on a quarterly type window. Um, and so it's, it is definitely very different than your standard version of leverage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I think your question to me before I went off on my tangent about Markowitz was how, how can investors think about using this concept? So I'm actually going to put my podcast host hat on for a second and flip it back to you because you have a lot of experience with institutions. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about this concept, tangentially related concept of portable alpha and how institutions tap into alpha opportunities um, through leverage and that sort of stuff. And maybe you can yeah. talk about portable alpha for a second. And I'll tie it back to this, which is I've, I've taken to calling this concept portable beta. That's interesting. I mean, I was just talking with the CIO of a very large pension in the U.S., and he does his portfolio is generally half in these type of strategies where he is, you know, he has a very, you know, he is one of the, the fixing commanders who's managing the portfolio of bonds, adding the equities on top. And I actually want to say it's almost half his portfolio does something like this. Now, his challenge is like, well, what should I complement this with? It's how do I actually reduce portfolios? Because a lot of his standard active managers haven't beaten just a 60-40. So that's one of the challenges is, well, who are the active managers if you're going to use this? As part of your core 90-60, who are the active managers that you think will complement it well? How do you actually get these diversifiers? And and his partly his view is, well, if I am capital constrained and I just want and I do have a tactical view on a certain asset class, perhaps you complement it with muni bonds, perhaps you complement it with currencies, perhaps you complement it with any just additional exposure that you might have felt just capital constrained that you couldn't allocate to. Um, but I think the big challenge as as the CIO of this large pension has said is, well, how much conviction do I have in these alternative managers, you know, and, and will they really add the alpha that I'm expecting from them? That's his dilemma right now. Yeah. And so, I mean, at least one of the popular ideas historically was this notion of, of portable alpha, which is you could have a pension or an endowment or a large institution that just had this very vanilla asset allocation and then could hire a hedge fund who was more or less market neutral, right? Didn't need a whole lot of collateral to put on, call it a long, short country bet, you know, using momentum or something like that, however they wanted to do it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what that meant was the institution had all the beta exposure they wanted and then could overlay alpha opportunities. That's not really possible for retail investors, right? And so what we've had to do 
ultimately in the retail space, particularly for more of the weird alternatives, is have to cut down our exposure to, to traditional beta to try to make room for these alternatives. And I think the large frustration that you see there is sort of twofold. The first is that a lot of the alternatives that come out in 40 Act products are, for lack of a better word, neutered. They come out with very low volatility because of the leverage constraints. And so you end up having, if you want the diversification benefits, you have to end up allocating a significant chunk to those alternatives. And what that means, the sort of knock-on effect of that for investors is they have to give up exposure to asset classes that they really understand, like stocks and bonds, to get exposure to things that they really don't. The problem is if you're a 60-40 investor, you have to ask yourself, what am I going to take an allocation away from to put into this exposure? Because I can't overlay it on my portfolio. So am I going to sell bonds and buy this ETF that I think is a diversifier, but maybe I just don't really understand the market that well? And now I'm under-allocated to bonds in favor of this weird esoteric exposure that behaviorally I might not be able to stick with, that's a little hard. Um, And so what I think is really interesting about the leverage concept, right, is that if I can use an ETF that gives me levered exposure to something like a 60-40, I don't have to make that decision. I can still maintain my full exposure to stocks and bonds and sort of that total beta, total notional exposure that I want, but still have room in my portfolio for these alternatives. And the net sort of experience for me is that I have my strategic beta that I'm allocated to, and these alternatives are effectively overlaid on my portfolio. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about employing leverage in the portfolio. Now, what's interesting, on when you, when you talked about your weird portfolio that we started in the first half of the conversation of how the optimizer wanted to get when for fixed income, it had a lot of long-term treasuries as part of the allocation. When you think about the way I've framed how to do a 90-60 combination where you own a portfolio of underlying stocks, you add the 60% bond futures, sort of laddered bond futures. So you only you do not have sort of short-term cash. You only have the long-term interest rate risk. You have 10% in cash, basically, as collateral for the futures. And so you really have this interest rate risk. You could say, like, the worst case environment is essentially sort of early 2018, rising rates. You have long-term rates going up, so you got bond futures going down, stocks going down because they're going down because you have rising rates. Um, but you do get this, if any sort of any commentary you have on just that interplay of the, the, the correlations between bonds and stocks uh, and as one of the risk factors to, you know, using a 90-60 strategy compared to what they might have in equities or what they thought about bonds historically. Yeah, so there's certainly, um, this is not a, a riskless trade, right? So you are expecting a certain amount of diversification here. Um, and maybe I'll touch on that as my second point. I think the more obvious um way to potentially think about what the risk is, is that um, an inverted yield curve is is a large risk. I, I think you saw sort of in the 70s when you had the, the inverted yield curve, you're basically financing at a rate and then reinvesting in these long-dated treasuries that are earning less than how much you're financing your leverage at. And so it's just a net drag. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily wouldn't want to do it. If, if the correlation between stocks and bonds is negative enough, it might be justified. Um, but again, so I, this isn't some riskless, you know, again, call it portable beta, adding some extra exposure into your portfolio and then you're just going to do better. There are certainly risks associated with it. I think, again, so an inverted yield curve is one. Um, this notion of, again, correlation is the other. If stocks and bonds become highly correlated, which in the past they have been. They've gone through periods, prolonged periods of positive correlation. Um, That can be a big risk to a levered portfolio because it implies the overall portfolio will be more volatile. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that if you're asking yourself, should I hold 100% stocks and 0% bonds and be aggressive, or should I hold a levered portfolio of a you know, 90-60 call it, 
I think the math, even when stocks and bonds get correlated, the math is probably still somewhat in favor of that levered portfolio. Or if you can then say, well, let me have perhaps not 100% notional exposure to that levered portfolio. Let me only allocate two-thirds of my cash to it and then add in all sorts of diversifying alternatives. Well, now you are potentially even in a better place. So I think investors have to be smart about how they use a tool like this. It is just a tool. It comes with risks. Um, Leverage is not a, a free gimme. But I think, again, it, it allows investors to think more creatively about how they can try to incorporate other uh, allocations into their portfolio that they, prior to using something like this, may not have been able to introduce. So you're, you're in my seat, and you get to ask, what is the alternative that is the most diversifying to a standard 60-40? What is the simple alternative strategy that is your pecking order of alternative strategies for diversification. Well, I, <laughs> I think I think the tongue-in-cheek answer is cash. I think it depends on what you mean by diversifying. I think for most investors, when they start thinking about alternatives, the first thing they go to is managed futures. Uh, that's been my experience over the last decade, and I think for most investors, it's been a very frustrating experience over the last five years. I think there's a significant amount of evidence that managed futures uh, are a tremendous diversifier. I think they can potentially, depending on how they're constructed, be considered sort of a, uh, a crisis alpha-type portfolio where they're really going to come into play in something like a 2008. But again, I think investors get very, very frustrated because if you have a 60-40 portfolio that you understand stocks, you understand bonds, you carve out a 20% allocation for managed futures, and you don't understand managed futures. Uh, you don't know why they're going up. You don't know why they're going down. You have to just sort of take them on faith that they're going to perform when you need them to. And in the meantime, you're just incredibly frustrated. That's a hard position to stick with particularly because it's not just the position is acting weird. You are you have the opportunity cost of what you could have been investing in. I think that's where, again, going back to this idea of using leverage, if I can put two-thirds of my portfolio in a 90-60 levered allocation, which still gives me 100% exposure to the 60-40, and then I get a third of my portfolio in managed futures, well, that managed futures, I don't want to call it, is a free overlay, but it's now more like an overlay on my portfolio. Um, and I think if you think of it in an aggregate way of what we're exposed to, we're exposed to 90% stocks, 60% bonds, managed futures, and then we have some financing hurdle. It's really just to the managed futures outperform the financing hurdle. You can sort of split them off and say, well, now this, again, looks and smells a lot like the portable alpha concept that institutions have been using for a long time. I mean, and what's, what's interesting about managed futures as the answer is part of the struggle for the last decade was, well, what is managed futures? You have a long portfolio of cash that collateralizes the futures. And so then, well, there's two components of a future strategy, which is you have this trend signal that tells you to go long or short, and that adds some alpha. Is your dynamic in and out going to add value? And then there's the well, and then what eats away sometimes is in long commodity strategy where a lot of these things earn is there's these contango where you have this upward sleeping curve of the futures that could eat away at a long commodity position. And now if you're in shorting one of those, you might be collecting the contango. But, you know, you had this environment where commodities were choppy. And so the signals weren't adding value and you had zero return on the cash. Well, now that the Fed's raising rates, actually you're getting some return on the cash and actually, when you think about what you're missing in a 90-60 trade, you're actually missing the cash component of a bond investment. So you actually add back the cash, and then you just have this signal alpha on top. Do you have a guess or a belief what signal alpha on managed futures should add over time? It's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, look, I, I think the signal alpha over time, I, my view is with most of these things is it's going to depend on the amount of leverage that's yeah. being taken um, in the actual portfolio construction. But it's, again, even if it's minimal, so long as it's diversifying, there's a benefit there because you don't have the same opportunity cost of what you're giving up in the traditional framework of not using leverage. You are still maintaining your full exposure to stocks and bonds. Now you're just adding this on top as sort of extra gravy. 
any other alternative managers or alternative strategies? Managed Future is one very interesting plug as a, an alternative diversifier. Um, you know, I, the CIO I was talking to said some of his long short managers were having four standard deviation to the negative downside events this year. Um, is long short still a category you would believe in? Is there anything else you think that's, that's worthwhile adding? Yeah, I think it's important here to distinguish between what's available in mutual fund format and what's available in, in a hedge fund. I think there's a lot of interesting alternatives. Um, equity long short uh, is one of them that I think on the hedge fund space can be potentially more interesting because there's a lack of uh, leverage constraints as there are in the mutual fund space. Now, that said, again, I think you use this concept of this levered 60-40 I think the lack of leverage or, or lack of volatility in some of these alternatives in, in the mutual fund or ETF landscape doesn't matter as much anymore um, because you're not having to carve away from stocks and bonds. This is just adding on top. So I do think um, the ability to say, well, let me take these equity market neutral long short strategies and add them in and just try to harvest some risk premia. And again, they're not they're diversifying and there might be some alpha there. So I think that's really interesting. I mentioned the Divi ETF. I think that one's really interesting. Um, and again, not all of these ETFs have to necessarily be totally independent of your other exposures. I, I think there's some really interesting dynamic long short ETFs that are out there. I think you guys even have one at Wisdom Tree where you might want more market beta. And so it can actually tilt you more or less market beta. Um, so those can be really interesting. So I think there's a lot of we're sort of in a, I don't want to say a renaissance period, but somewhat of a renaissance period for liquid alternatives coming to market. And I think a lot of the frustration, again, with liquid alternatives was, well, how do I allocate to them and what am I taking capital away from? I think a levered 60-40 ETF helps us avoid that question and, again, allows us to just think of, well, now we're just overlaying these alternatives on our portfolio. Any other ideas on this uh, on this topic, things you think you people should be be working on? Well, it'll be really interesting to see. Um, I mean, I, I hope this idea takes off. I think it's a very interesting tool. I mean, I think for a lot of investors, particularly young investors, it's one of those concepts that, hey, instead of just going all in on equities, this is a, just a much more um, sophisticated approach potentially to trying to get your long-term growth. I would love to see this broken up in different ways, getting access to different markets, of course. Um, so feedback I got already was why just the U.S. in a stock bond? Why not do ACWI with the underlying equities and, and the bond futures? Um, so it, it certainly does lead to interesting conversation, which actually that makes sense. And we, we, we definitely thought of this as, hey, let's just give beta, right? So there's a lot of active managers doing um, active management of the bonds with a alpha-seeking equity on top at, you know, de- decently higher fees. And this is trying to come out at at uh, you know the the ETF NTSX twenty basis points, uh, pretty low you know for the, the idea of getting this this levered sixty forty concept, and we think it's a a reasonable first to market. I mean, we, we, we doesn't do a lot of beta type stuff, but as a first to market, this is an access story, and so it's a, an interesting new uh, new foray for us. So let me put my podcast host hat yeah. on for a moment and ask you because I mean you've obviously been thinking about this. Uh, for at least eight months now, you're you're bringing a product to market. You've spoken internally about it at length. I'm sure thought about lots of creative ideas. What is to you one of the most interesting creative ways you've thought about using this type of product? It's a really interesting question, right? I mean, it's a matter of what are these alternatives that you have the most conviction in. But I do think, well, if you think about how other people have looked at risk parity strategies. They're levering up, in ways, bond risk to get equity volatility because it's just, just a different bond portfolio volatility than equities. In a way, you're adding in more bond risk than you might to try to help balance that risk. That is not a complete risk parity strategy, but that's one way to think about adding more bond risk to it. I do think of it as creating room for the long shorts and the alternatives. Like, as you're saying, like there are... We do manage futures, we do long short, and so and actually just try to give people some idea how to package a portfolio and how much they should add to alternatives. I do think that's where it is, and so now for me, it's like how do I get the highest conviction alternatives portfolio construction for model portfolio work, and that's another thing that we're focused on is how do we build this high conviction alternatives sleeve. 
And so that's something I'm going to be doing a lot of work on, trying to get that stable of managers that we could use in complementing with this you know, placeholder for 60-40. But it could just be these cash plugs, things that can re- add returns on top of cash, that holy grail. What is your absolute return cash plus strategy? I think one of the other interesting ideas I've, I've heard as it relates to this is, again, using that levered 60-40 to create room in the portfolio to make thematic bets that you might have a particular view about, I don't call it high yield bonds today or whatever it is. Um, maybe there's some thematic equity bet you want to make, but you don't want to constantly have to be thinking about where am I taking this from necessarily. Again, to your point, so long as you sort of beat the financing rate in your bet, this can be a way for you to add those sort of tactical exposures thematically over time. So I think there's, again, a lot of creative ways that a product like this, I personally, my, my preference is the idea of, hey, let me just more strategically allocate to this and pair it with a bunch of diversifying alternatives and have that be it. I think that's a really intriguing and to me sort of the most interesting way of using it. But I've heard a number of different people talk about all the creative ways something like this can be used. And I, and I think, again, to the point of packaged product is is just a tool in an investor's toolkit. I think this is expanding the ETF landscape in, in a meaningful way um, that a lot of other firms have not been willing to to explore. Thank you for the feedback in Barron's. Thank you for the feedback offline and, and discussing about it, for coming on the show today, talking about it. Thank you for, for all that. Well, thank you for coming to my office to record. Before we finish up, I'd just like to note a few things. Past performance is not indicative of future results. The Wisdom Tree 9060 U.S. Balance Fund is new and has a limited operating history. There are risks associated with investing, including possible loss of principal. While the Wisdom Tree 9060 U.S. Balance Fund is actively managed, the fund's investment process is expected to be heavily dependent on quantitative models, and the models may not perform as intended. Equity securities, such as common stocks, are subject to market economic and business risk that may cause their prices to fluctuate. The fund invests in derivatives to gain exposure to U.S. Treasuries. The return on a derivative instrument may not correlate with the return of its underlying reference asset. The fund's use of derivatives will give rise to leverage, and derivatives can be volatile and may be less liquid than other securities. As a result, the value of an investment in the fund may change quickly and without warning, and you may lose money. Interest rate risk is the risk that fixed income securities and financial instruments related to fixed income securities would decline in value because of an increase in interest rates, and the change to other factors, such as the perception of an issuer's credit worthiness. Please read the fund's perspectives for specific details regarding the fund's risk profile. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risk, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, please call 866-909-WISE-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com to view or download prospectus. Investors should read the prospectus carefully before investing. Wisdom Tree funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC, which is not affiliated with the entities mentioned. I'd like to thank our guest, Corey Hofstein, for joining us on our show today. It's been a great discussion. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.